Hey everybody, this week, so instead of having myself and Ben, your usual hosts, I'm here with a special guest, Professor Stuart Russell of Berkeley, um, who's written a really fascinating book about AI and the future of AI, and we're going to talk about it. Professor Russell, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So, uh, Professor Russell, I know your name might be familiar to a lot of folks who are listening to this podcast, but for those who don't know your work as much, or they maybe recognize the name but aren't quite sure how to place it, do you mind giving a brief introduction? Sure. So uh, I've been at Berkeley uh, longer than I care to remember, about 30, <laughs> 34 years, and um, I've been doing AI actually since I was in high school. I wrote a chess program uh, back around 1975 uh, in high school. So. Uh, I've been doing AI a long time. Uh, you might know my name if you've taken an AI course. You probably used a book by Russell and Norvig. Uh, so Peter Norvig and I wrote that uh, starting in 1992. We just sent the fourth edition off to the printer last week. Congratulations. Uh, and uh, so my research has covered uh, pretty much every area of artificial intelligence, reasoning, learning, problem solving, game playing, planning, robotics, language, vision. Um, these days, uh, I'm concerned about the following simple question, which we had actually in the first edition of the textbook. Uh, what if we succeed? There's a new book that you have out now, Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. As you mentioned, this it sounds like this is something you've at least been aware of for a long time wanted to ask what motivated you to write this book now? So the book uh, sort of has two parts. One is the part that says, okay, this is how we currently think of AI, uh, and this is why it's extremely wrong. Um, and uh, if we pursue the current standard model of AI, uh, as AI systems get better and better, uh, we face the prospect of losing control over them uh, and losing control to machines altogether. Um, the second part of the book says, okay, here's how to fix it. Uh, here's a way of doing AI on a completely different kind of general theoretical foundation and conceptual framework. Uh, and in this new framework, it seems that uh, at least that failure mode of losing control uh, to machines um, seems to go away. So why right. I work now is because uh, sometime around 2013, 2014, uh, I figured out what the second half of the book should be, namely, here's a way of dealing with the problem. Uh, I didn't just want to write a book saying, okay, we're all doomed. <laughs> right. Already, you know, and Alan Turing, actually, in 1951, said, we're all doomed. Uh, so that's not a, that wouldn't be a new point. So without asking you to cannibalize your book sales too much here, you know, uh, in, in a snapshot, what, what is the fundamental way that we've gotten it wrong for a long time? And where, where is the ray of hope that you found in that second half of the book? So the standard model of AI uh, involves building machinery that optimizes a fixed known objective. Uh, so if you remember, if you've read the first, uh, few chapters of the book, uh, the textbook, um, we talk about, for example, problem solving systems that uh, find a sequence of actions that's guaranteed to 
achieve a goal with minimum cost. So there you have to specify the goal, you have to specify the cost function. Um, in Markov decision processes, you have to specify the reward function. In machine learning algorithms, you have to specify the loss function. Uh, in control theory, you have to specify a cost function. So in fact, it's not just AI, it's a, a good fraction of 20th century technology is based on this model. Uh, and the model is wrong because we do not know how to specify objectives correctly, particularly when you have systems that start to operate in the real world. It's easy on the chessboard to say, okay, you're supposed to win the game. Uh, but in the real world, you might say, okay, uh, I'd like you to restore carbon dioxide levels to uh, pre-industrial concentrations so that we can get the climate back in balance. That sounds great. What a wonderful objective. Yeah, what could go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Well, you'd get rid of all the people because they're the ones who are producing the carbon dioxide. And then you might say, okay, well, let's not do that. Let's uh, restore carbon dioxide and not kill anybody. Uh, and then, of course, the system has a very uh, subtle and complex social media campaign that convinces everyone to have fewer and fewer children uh, until there are no people left and then carbon dioxide is restored. Uh, and that's much easier than trying to do all the politics of convincing people to stop consuming and producing and all that kind of stuff. So um, so actually, we've known this for a long time, right? We have the story of King Midas. You know, he gave his, his uh, objective specification, everything he touches has to turn to gold. And, and of course, it was the wrong objective. And he died because his food and his drink uh, and his family turned to gold. Um, and the genie, you know, you get the three wishes. Your third wish is always, please undo the first two wishes because I messed everything up. Right, so we know this, um, and yet we persist with a model where the more uh, effective, the better the AI, the worse the outcome is going to be for human beings. Uh, and if that isn't a bad engineering model, I don't know what is. Right? So I think we should abandon that way of doing things. Um, in brief, the solution is to say that um, the machine's objective is still to satisfy human preferences about the future, but the machine knows that it doesn't know what those preferences are. So it's explicitly uncertain. Um, and just to give you a simple analogy, uh, when you go to a restaurant, the restaurant doesn't know what you want to eat. They know that they don't know <laughs> what you want to eat, uh -huh. and so they ask you, what would you like to eat? Mm -hmm. Well, the menu of choices. And if you pick something off the menu, um, that isn't their life's objective at all costs to, to give you that thing. You know, if they're out of that item, they're not going to, you know, traipse all over the city trying to find more of it. They'll say, well, sorry, sir, you know, we're out of the duck tonight. Or, you know, the chicken's not so great, but maybe I could recommend the pork medallions instead, or whatever it might be. So this is perfectly normal and understandable to human beings that we don't know what uh, other humans want and we ask them and or they tell us and we, we have an interactive process. And we can do the same thing with machines. The machine knows that it doesn't know what humans want, but it has to somehow act in a way that is beneficial to us. So it's naturally motivated. So if it's trying to solve that problem, the solution to that problem is to do things like ask questions, ask permission before you know, before you kill everyone to restore carbon dioxide levels, you ask, you know, I understand about the carbon dioxide. Is it okay if I kill everyone? 
And then you could say, no, that's not what we had in mind. I prefer that you're not, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's the basic goal. And uh, we can formulate this mathematically. If you're interested, it's a you know, problem in game theory. Um, and the solutions to those games have the property that the better the AI, the better the outcome for human beings. And, and so as a person who has a, a strong technical background here, as well as, you know, reading the book, it's clear that you're, you're also thinking about, you know, the social implications, the philosophical implications, there's economics entering the picture in the form of game theory, you know, putting all of that together, how optimistic are you that at even at, let's start with the technical level that this is something that is computationally tractable. It's something that it's realistic to think that we could implement. Um, you know, does it feel like a solution sort of from those angles as well? Uh, great, great questions. Um, so I think part of what we have to do, besides convincing everyone that they're wrong, uh, we've or oh, they've, they've, been, uh, they've been misled, let me put it that way. Uh, and partly by me, because the AI textbook editions one, two, and three, uh, you know, espouse the standard model of AI. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to con convince people that this new approach is a better one. And I think it is, you know, even in the short term, this is not just about, you know, losing control and existential risk. This is about, you know, how do you design, design a good personal assistant or a good domestic robot? Um, you know, you don't want the domestic robot cooking the cat for dinner because it doesn't understand the sentimental value of the cat. You at least ask permission uh, before doing that. Um, so the, uh, the problem of solving these games, actually, we've, we've been gradually reducing the complexity of that. Um, it has certain, the game has certain characteristics that make it quite a bit easier than a general game of partial information. Um, so we've reduced it down to uh, no more complex than uh, a certain restricted class of partially observable MDPs or POMDPs. Um, and those are still, you know, in general, those are piece-based complete, but um, we think that probably it's less complex than that. And we're able to now solve, you know, decent-sized instances of these games and, and exhibit these kinds of behaviors. So, you know, surprisingly... Um, it's, it's not just what is the machine's solution to the game. It's also, well, how does the human behave since they're part of this game as well? Uh, and they do things like show the robot what not to do, right? which, of course, you would never do. I mean, the human by themselves would, wouldn't be doing that, right? So the robot seeing the human showing the robot what not to do has to understand that the human isn't showing him what to do. He's showing him what not to do. Uh, and, uh, and, and since they both solved this game, uh, then they both understand the sort of code uh, of communicating information. So the, the defining characteristic of this approach to AI is that at runtime, information flows from the human to the machine uh, about what human preferences are. And you can set up all kinds of different protocols for what that information flow looks like. It could be in the form of demonstrations. It could be in the form of just requests. You know, I'd like a cup of coffee, right? Well, that's not a straightforward goal. We don't want uh, that coffee to become the robot's life mission at all costs, you know, including murdering everyone at Starbucks so that you can get to the front of the line, uh, right? It's, so it's, it's a communication of preference information 
uh, and what it means, uh, that's part of the solution of the game. So one thing I found myself wondering about when I think of, you know, what are some of the stereotypical uses of what people call AI right now is, you know, I think of my, my Netflix queue, my Facebook feed, uh, all the pop-up ads that I get. And, and I'm picking these on purpose as examples of AI that on the one hand has been kind of finely tuned to, I don't know, hit our dopamine receptors in such a way that we're always like, yeah, give me more of that. But, you know, we all also kind of have these conversations where we, we back up a step and say like, oh, no, that's not good. <laughs> so when it comes to something like the AI understanding what my preferences are, like, do you think that there's there's some subtleties in how we would have to think about those kinds of problems where like we kind of are, let's say in some cases, giving it clues about our preferences that are not actually telling it something that's truly what we prefer, let's say. Yeah, I, I think social media is a is a very interesting example. So it's it's one case where, at least according to most commentators, AI is already destroying the world. Um, and it's doing so because you've released learning algorithms that have a fixed objective, um, typically maximizing click-through or engagement or uh, some metric um, that's closely related to income for the, uh, for the platform. And um, the algorithms uh, optimize that objective and they don't care what they do to you. Uh, you are just a stream of clicks. And in fact, it's not just that they learn to satisfy your, uh, your interests. They actually modify your interests um, because you know, this, that's what reinforcement learning algorithms do. They change the state of the world to, to get more reward. And you are the state of the world, so they change you to get more reward. Uh, they're like drug dealers who keep upping the dose uh, to get you more and more addicted so that you have to keep spending money. Um, and it just so happens that you know they're, what they're driving you towards is being predictable. They don't particularly want you to be a neo-fascist or a violence addict or a porn addict. Uh, they just want you to be predictable um, so that whenever they send you something, you click on it. Um, but it turns out that uh, the, the way to make you that person is to drive you to one extreme or another or whatever spectrum you're on. Um, so... What, what's going wrong there actually is several things, I think. Um, one is that uh, the, um, the opportunity for providing negative feedback to the system is very limited. So you can fail to click on something, but that's, you know, that could just be because you're having a cup of tea or because it could be that you find it utterly repulsive that it sent you that thing. Uh, and you don't, in most cases, you don't get the opportunity uh, to say that. Um, so you get this one-sided feedback, um, but also what the algorithm is doing is actually you know, violating one of the tenets, uh, which is that um, you, the algorithm is supposed to be satisfying human preferences, not modifying. And uh, so, mod you know, modifying human preferences is is, is a sort of a failure mode um, that is already familiar in science fiction and it's very familiar to any politician. Uh, you satisfy people's preferences by modifying them to be easier to satisfy. Gotcha. Uh, and that's, that's something we absolutely need to avoid, uh, whatever kind of AI system we build. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
There's another aspect of your book that I think you've, you've mentioned a little bit, but I wanted to take the chance to ask you about. There's there's a whole chapter, uh, I think it's entitled The Not-So-Great AI Debate, um, about how you, you've sort of mentioned it parenthetically, uh, the premise that this is a real threat and that it's something we need to have a serious conversation about now is not universally treated with a whole lot of respect in AI circles. There are lots of people who are very smart and distinguished people who say for various reasons that they think the risk is overblown. I'm curious from your perspective, what is it about this field? Do you think that um, prompts very smart, thoughtful, insightful people to disagree so much about something as foundational as is this an existential risk or not? Um, I think you would see the same reaction in almost any field uh, to someone saying, okay, the work that you're doing, uh, if taken to its logical conclusion, could present an existential risk to the human race. Uh, interestingly, when, um, so it, there have been a couple of occasions in the history of physics when uh, the same issue was raised. Uh, and actually, I think the physicists responded better. Uh, so one was in 1945, when uh, they were very close to developing uh, and testing the first nuclear weapon. And uh, some physicists said it's possible that uh, the nuclear explosion would actually ignite the entire atmosphere, it would create a, a nuclear chain reaction among the nitrogen uh, atoms in the atmosphere. And uh, so Edward Teller uh, and another researcher whose name I forget actually did the calculations. And they said, we're pretty sure we have a factor of two safety margin on this one. <laughs> so oh <boy>. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> um, and uh, it turned out that, yeah, well, actually, no, they didn't say that. They said, with the size of device that we're, uh, we're testing, it's a factor of two. Um, but they actually agreed with the objection if, I think they said, if you made a, a sphere of enriched uranium 192 meters in diameter, that would be sufficient to ignite the atmosphere. Um, so, uh, you know, you might yeah. want to, okay, well, what if they made a little mistake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or someone else should check the work. Um, and then the, another one was where, you know, when they were talking about switching on the Large Hadron Collider. Ah, uh, yes, I remember um, this. This was when I, I was in graduate school. Yeah. Production of strangelets and um, and that kind of chain reaction. So I, for that case, I don't know enough about the physics to say whether that even made sense. And I think some people thought it didn't make sense, but I believe that they actually took it seriously and, and produced an argument as to why this actually wouldn't happen. But when you look at the arguments in AI, why do we not need to worry? They clearly don't make sense, right? So well-known AI professor says, well, you know, electronic calculators are superhuman at arithmetic and they haven't taken over the world. Therefore, there's nothing to worry about, right? I mean, a four-year-old could see through that argument. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. uh, you know, so, uh, and in the book, I actually list, you know, half a dozen other ones. And since, since you're a physicist, um, there was a, an objection saying, well, you know, if a black hole was to sort of randomly materialize in near-Earth orbit, that would be an existential risk. But we don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. So why should we worry about 
super intelligent AI. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the response is, well, if the entire physics community was trying to make a black hole, <laughs> That's true. In we were not trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> if that was a good idea, or, you know, why are you doing that? And, and what happens if you succeed, right? And that's, that's the, that's all I'm asking. What happens if you succeed? So some AI researchers respond by saying, oh, actually we're never going to succeed. Well, that, that's uh, not satisfying in a different way, I suppose. <laughs> right, so, so, right. We're all trying, but, you know, we're never going to succeed. And I, I think the analogy I use is like a bus driver who's driving off the cliff, you know, with the whole human race as passengers. And he says, I'm driving off the cliff as fast as I can, but don't worry, we're going to run out of gas before we get there. Right? Um, it does yeah. not be reassuring. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, so I wanted to uh, then hear how how is this argument being received? As you've, um, I'm sure you've been making, you know, giving talks and writing papers and thinking about this for for some time. The book came out late last year, if I'm not mistaken. So had a little bit of time to make the rounds. Perhaps you know what from the lay person that you talk to to the people who are in pretty uh, rarefied leadership circles to the AI research community. I'm really curious how these arguments are being received. Uh, so far, pretty well. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've seen any review that had uh, an argument in opposition to the main points of the book. Um, we have, you know, if you want to sort of look at uh, People uh, with distinguished records, um, Yuda Pearl, who won the Turing Award in 2011, uh, says that he's a convert. Um, Yoshio Bengio, who just won the Turing Award uh, this year, um, wrote a very nice uh, set of comments about the book. Um, Danny Kahneman, who's probably the leading psychologist in the world, according to some metrics, and uh, Nobel Prize winner economics, says it's the most important book he's read in quite some time. Um, James Manyika, who runs the McKinsey Global Institute uh, and also is an AI researcher, says it's the most important AI book so far. Do you think for the folks who are... Yet to see sort of uh, much pushback and they keep inviting me to give talks at all the main conferences. So I guess they like that's, it. Yeah, that's that's a good sign. I think um, my question is also for folks who are listening to this and maybe practicing in this field and who are like, eh, you know, uh, interesting arguments. Maybe they'll pick up the book or give it, give it a little more thought than they gave it yesterday. Um, you know, if there are any other barriers, like what are, what are, I'm sure there are barriers. Maybe I'll phrase it this way. What are some of the biggest barriers that you think are still kind of systematically baked into the field of AI that are, incentivizing people to keep driving the bus as fast as they can towards the cliff. And that, you know, if we, if we start to have some, some momentum around the idea that we should change the way we think about this, change the way that we formulate these research objectives, what, what do you think takes, it will take to implement it from that perspective? Um, so I think first of all, the bus driver has to see that there is a cliff ahead. So that's the first step. Uh, and then the second step is you have to provide another road, a turnoff. Um, and uh, this is what we're hard at work on now is essentially rebuilding all the technology of AI on this new foundation. 
Uh, because if you just say to everyone, stop what you're doing, but you don't give them another road to follow. Right? Yeah, that's tough. That's, that's difficult to do. And for example, if you're doing supervised learning, uh, which is what a lot of people are doing out there, they would, uh, you know, such a person would ask, well, what else am I supposed to do? I've got data. I'm supposed to train this network. I want to make predictions. Um, but you should ask, what what is the loss function that you're using? Mm -hmm. So you don't even you don't even have to immediately buy into you know a whole new theoretical framework with game theory and all that stuff. Just to ask yourself, what is the objective that I'm actually optimizing, uh, and is it the right one? And are there externalities that I'm not considering in the effects that think of them as side effects of deploying the system that I'm building. So when you take supervised learning, right, you might say, oh, well, of course, I want to have the highest accuracy that I can. Um, and that's typically what people do. And that's what all the competitions do. Uh, and so effectively, they're implementing a loss function, which is what we call the uniform loss matrix, which assumes that all errors are equally costly. In mm -hmm. the yeah. Right? That assumes that misclassifying, you know, a, a lime as a lemon is just as bad as misclassifying a person as a gorilla. Right. Now we know from Google Photo that the second kind of error uh, is extremely expensive uh, from Google's public relations point of view, um, and it was sort of a catastrophe for them. Uh, so you should not be using a uniform loss function unless you're pretty sure that's in fact the, the right loss function. And if you said, well, what should the loss matrix be for classifying images? Well, there's 20,000 categories in ImageNet. So that means a 400 million entry loss matrix. We haven't figured out what numbers go in that matrix, right? We mostly don't know what is the cost of misclassifying an A as a B for every possible A and every, every possible B. So that means you should be operating an algorithm that has uncertainty about the loss matrix. And once you have uncertainty about the loss matrix, then the algorithm should be sometimes refusing to classify things, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes coming back to the user or the designer saying, you know, can you give me more guidance? You know, is, is it really bad if I misclassify a lemon as a lime mm -hmm. uh, or a bus as a dog or cat as uh, an elephant? And uh, gradually you could build up knowledge. But, you know, interestingly, uh, there's almost no research on that question. Right? We don't even know how to specify probability distributions over loss matrices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially enormous ones. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of PhD thesis topics. I mean, there are literally hundreds of PhD thesis topics just waiting to be done. Uh, and uh, the sooner we do those, the sooner we can provide people with alternative technology. You might call it. Uh, so it's sort of like the pe the problem that people face in sustainability. Mm -hmm. The <laughs> the car manufacturers have been saying for decades. Well, yes, of course you're right, but. There's no other kind of car, so we're going to keep making the kind of car that we have. Um, and uh, they're sort of putting the onus on someone else to come up with a sustainable car. Um, and maybe Tesla did that for them. Well, I think that's as good a call to action as uh, as I've ever seen. So with that, 
I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to to come on. Uh, again, the title of the book is Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence, and the Problem of Control. Professor Stuart Russell, thank you again so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.